Okay, Lord willing, everything will go forward and uh, be less problems. I think I can officially say for a few more seconds, good morning. It will be afternoon real soon. So we are continuing on in our uh, our reading here in uh, in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. It's a good place to be. Um, Isaiah was uh, in a time of uh, upheaval in the sense that the people had rebelled. And uh, God was having to deal with them. Not much different than our own time. When there's so much upheaval, so much chaos, and purposed chaos. Um, it has been said that the uh, all you need is uh, 12 to 15% of the people to do an overthrow. Did you know that? An overthrow of an entire country. All you need is the, the push and the, the, a group of just 12 to 15% of the people. The populace. Because most decent folk will just go along. They won't stand up. Well, Isaiah was uh, called by God and he was called for a specific purpose. We're going to cover that. But, uh, you know, I wanted to remind you that last week we were in, uh, uh, we opened up in Isaiah 6 here. And we were in that place where we were looking at our awesome God. Who's awesome. He's amazing. He's glorious. And here you have an example where Isaiah is expressing what took place when he was given a vision. And uh, we're going to delve into that a little bit more. But just like he was called in a, in a time, sometimes we as, as Christians, we're called, um, we're obviously called to be salt and light in the world, in a fallen world, in a world that is sinful and uh, um, in a world that wants nothing to do with God, really, when you think about it. Not the true God, anyways. Many people go around with their ideas of, of who God is, and, and uh, they believe that uh, as long as they believe that, they'll be fine. Uh, most people in the world believe that there is a God. But do they believe in the God, the only God, the one and true and only God? And that's the question. And without that, without knowing who God is, we really don't have any basis for truth or anything else. And, and we're in a time of upheaval and things like that um, where you see all different kinds of uh, evils that are being um, normalized. Um, just as I was, uh, just before we, we got done praying, um, one of the things that I was reading was somebody was, had, a, had a, a poster that said, why are we talking about masks and uh, sickness that doesn't really get too many people that sick and very few really actually die from it unless you're you know, old and already on your way out. Um, he's, the rest of the thing was, he says, when, when you have pedophilia that is becoming normalized in society and you have them in the government, why are we talking about this thing that doesn't matter when we should be Enraged at this fact. Everything's been turned upside down. It's, uh, I would commend all of you, if you've never read the book 1984, to read it. Um, by uh, George Orwell. Talk about Orwellian times. We're in them. <laughs> there are things going on that are just so bizarre that you can't fathom that they would be accepted as normal. And they're normalized in the media day after day after day. And that's because the people have turned away from God. 
They've turned away from God. People don't want to hear the gospel. People don't want to know what the gospel is. They want a gospel of their own. A gospel of their own making. A gospel of their own mind. A gospel of their own imagination. And in every single one of those things, it is a gospel that is sinful. Why? Because it's not based in truth. It's not based in the one true God. Isaiah came to find this out as he was given this vision. And and what a privilege when you think about it. This fallen man, this creature, when the God of all gods gives him a vision to give him a small glimpse of what actually takes place. And he sees what he sees and he's undone. He's undone. I want to make sure I enunciate that right because I spoke to somebody yesterday and I told them what the message title message was going to be and they said, did you say I'm done? <laughs> like, no, no, it's not I'm done. It's undone. That's what Isaiah, after seeing this vision, this is the only response that he could get to. I'm undone. And I pray that as we go through this that we might be that, uh, in that same kind of mindset and understanding the glorious God that we serve and and how He has given us so much. Isaiah, he's seen a vision of what God alone could show. It wasn't something of his own imagination. And I want to make that clear. It wasn't something that he made up. It wasn't like so many people that do in the church today that you see on TBN and some of these other televangelists, you know, they... Say, you know, God this morning, I was speaking to God this morning and He told me. Like, really? He did, huh? And some of the things He supposedly tells them is pretty specious at best. It's like, what? That doesn't sound like God to me. Um, Only God could show him what he saw. We spent time last week, we were looking at some of the verses and passages describing the awesome God. How when God is is, uh, just His mere presence, if if these windows were clear and you can see those, those mountains that are right there. The presence of God, they shake, they tremble. They quake. Just at His presence. He's awesome. He's amazing. He's glorious. He's wondrous. He's beyond description. He's indescribable. I wish I could describe Him to you. I can. This is the awesome God that we serve and worship. The mountains tremble at the mere presence of Him who alone is holy. He alone is holy. Isaiah, he is in awe and he is astonished at the sight of what he sees that he has been privileged to see. He sees these mighty creatures, these seraphim that are there in the presence of God with six wings. And we're going to get a little glimpse more of this scene towards the end of the message. But he sees these creatures. These are mighty creatures. These are the creatures that God would use to, in, uh, it says in, in, uh, in the Old Testament, where the Assyrians had come to attack, and God in one single night, or sent an angel in one single night, to wipe out 185,000. One angel. That's it. Not angels, but just one. 
And these are the same type of mighty creatures that, that Isaiah got to glimpse. And that wasn't enough. It's what they were in the presence of that got him to that place where he said, I'm undone. I'm undone. He sees these creatures and they're mighty creatures and they won't even look. They're covering their eyes. They're covering their feet and with two, they're flying. And their response is so proper. The only words, the adjective that they have to, 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 to cry out to one another of this, of the presence of the king, the Yahweh of armies, is one word. Holy. It's an adjective that is descriptive of, of the one that they're in the presence of. And that's what they say to one another. Holy. That's their word that they can describe. The best word. The only word that really fits. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The Lord of armies. Yahweh of armies. And they're astounded. And at this scene, Isaiah is undone. He's seen something that he will never forget. He will never be rid of this vision. It will always haunt him. And he will always celebrate it. This vision will be with him. It will be lasting forever. He sees these mighty creatures, these uh, seraphim. Seraphim, uh, the word seraph is the word that is used there to describe them. And they're fiery creatures. It's as if they're reflecting the glory of the one in whom the, they're in the presence of. They're reflecting this glory and they look like fiery things. They're glowing with the glory of the one true king. And it's that idea that we're going to look at. When you're in the presence of God, you cannot truly be in the presence of God and be unchanged. You can't. You can't. This morning there's millions and millions and millions and millions of people and churches all over or maybe somewhere meeting outside or whatever they're doing. They can't meet in buildings and so on and so forth. And some of them are just defying the government. Praise God for that. They're saying, no, nope, sorry. If you can go to a massage parlor all 24 hours a day, you can go to church. And the uh, the presence that God, when you're in that presence, you don't stay the same. And there's millions upon millions upon millions of people that call themselves Christians who say that they know Jesus, who say that, oh yeah, I, I accepted Jesus in my heart. And live the same way that they've always lived. There's no change. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're not truly understanding the holiness of God. And that's one of the problems that, that I see that, that is unfolding. And praise God that there are some people who are starting to get back to the place where we're focusing on, as a church, on the holiness of God, on His holiness. And not just His holiness, but the way that we should live in holiness. Not that we can uh, grasp after a, uh, um, uh, a holiness that is our own, but it's a desire to live in a way different than what we used to live. And it's not a legalist. I'm not talking about legalism. And I'm not talking about moralism. I'm talking about the Spirit of God 
burning within us to change us. And that's what happens when a person truly becomes a Christian. They're not converted in their soul by the, uh, by the means of their own decision and their own will and their own things. They're, they're born again of God and made new. And we're going to see that here in Isaiah. These holy creatures. He's, he's in the presence of all this holiness. <laughs> he just has one word. Undone! It could be I'm unclean. I'm like a leper. And we're going to cover that a little bit more. And uh, they're in the presence of Almighty God. Even these angels who exist and they cover their eyes. As if to indicate they cannot look directly at the holiness and the glory of this one. The one who they behold and adore and they worship. And this is how they worship these particular magnificent creatures. They are there flying in the presence of Almighty God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And they're compelled by the sight to utter to each other over and over and over again those words. It's descriptive of that king. And so as we open up our minds and hearts to these things, I want to read uh, the passages that we're going to try to cover this morning or this afternoon. And um, we begin in verse 5. He has seen this, this vision. He has heard this foundation rumbling. He's seen the trembling. He's seen the temple filled with smoke. He's seen the whole earth is filled with the glory of God in His creation. And then he says, this is his response, the rightful response. In verse 5, he says, Then I said, Woe is me, I'm undone. I'm ruined. Why? Because I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord, hosts. I want you to notice that... Um, in the vision, when he first describes, he says he saw the Lord, Adonai, in verse 1. And here, when he sees the Lord of hosts, it's Yahweh, an entirely different word. He's ascribing it to the one being, to the one person, I should say, to the one person that, is, that he has seen. He says, my eyes have seen the king, and he's, he's granting to him that. He's the king. I've seen the king. And I think about the, uh, I've seen uh, videos where, um, and I'm sure it drives the Secret Service nuts, uh, where people are lined up to go to uh, uh, listen to the president speak, and they're lined up with all their flags and all their stuff and, and all that. And all of a sudden, the, the, the whole, all of those cars and, and the, the whole thing just comes to a halt. And it's the president just wanting to get out and shake the hand. I'm sure that drives the, Secret Service nuts. Because that's not the plan, Prez. <laughs> We're not supposed to do this. But he wants to go amongst the people and just say thank you. Thank you for supporting me. Thank you. And people just, they, 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 they're just overwhelmed at that idea. Hey, this is the president. I've seen people that are supposed to be against him that, that were against him and then they meet him for whatever reason, sometimes due to horrific, ter terrible reasons. 
their children were killed and, and he somehow reaches out to them and, and tells them that he's praying for them, that he cares about them. If there's anything he can do, just like the, the uh, I can't remember what her name was uh, there in Texas, who was murdered so ruthlessly. And he had them come to the, to the White House and, and honored her. And, and uh, the, the mother was there trying to de- describe, you know, all that she's going through and, and how he said, you know, I don't know, you know, when you're going to have the funeral and all that thing. He says, but, but I want to help you. If I can, I'll, you know, I'll pay for whatever you want, whatever you need. And they said, well, the, the army's going to take care of it. He says, oh, well, good, but I want you to know that I'm, I'm willing. I'm willing to do that. She was left in tears. She was broken. Because she understood that, hey, this is, this is the president of the United States saying, I, I want to help take care of your daughter and your needs. This is, and if, if, it's, if it's that big of a deal to just for a president who's a, he's definitely a fallen man, y'all. Uh, president Trump, he's not even close to perfect. <laughs> he's a very flawed man. But imagine, like, Isaiah here, he's saying, I've seen the king, the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. I mean, it's a whole different experience. Let's continue on here. He says, I, 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 my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, behold. This has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. You know what this is a picture of, y'all? picture of grace. This is grace. You didn't see Isaiah sitting there uh, uh, asking for it or pleading for it or, or doing anything. He's just saying, he's just confessing, man, I'm unclean. I'm unclean in the presence of this holiness that I've seen. This is the God that I serve. And he comes and he touches his lips. He says this, cleans you and that lets you know that you're forgiven. It's grace. And then in verse 8 he says, Then I heard the voice of Adonai saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And he said, go and tell this. People, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive and their ears dull. And their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, uh, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitants. Houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many. In the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it. And it will again be subject to burning. Like the terebinth or an oak. Whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for how you love us. We thank you that you are the God who has revealed himself. This holy God, this righteous God, this perfect God. And we thank you, Lord, that you have convicted us, convicted us of our sins. That we may come to you like Isaiah. And proclaim those words that were never truer. I'm unclean. I'm undone. I'm ruined. Father, we just pray that you would have your way. And that you would open up eyes, ears, minds, hearts to these truths. And that you would be glorified and exalted. And lifted up in this place for your name's sake. For your glory's sake we ask in Jesus' holy name. So Isaiah says, woe is me, I am unruined because I am a man of unclean lips. This is why he's ruined. What's he saying? Man, here these mighty creatures have this response and it's true. And it's truthful. And it's right. And it's good. And it's perfect. It's the perfect response. Holy. 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 Like, I'm a, I'm a sinful preacher. My lips are filthy. They're, they're dirty. Woe is me, he says. Woe is me. Isaiah's astonished by the glory of God. He pronounces a, an oracle curse upon himself. And that is when he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. He's acknowledging that he is unclean and that his lips are unclean. The word unclean here is the, is the uh, Hebrew word um, tamay, tamay. And it just simply means un, uh, unclean, impure, ethically and religiously, ritually. Everything about him is unclean, dirty, filthy, in the presence of the Almighty. And he says his lips... The safa, the safa is, is what he's talking about. And it's literally the lips, the part of the body. And it could mean the language. Even that which I speak that comes from these lips, it's unclean. He says, and I live amongst the people that are unclean. And then he says, my eyes have seen. My eyes have seen. King, this is why I know that I'm unclean. When you see the king in his glory, in his holiness, and you see yourself in that light, in that mirror, in the light of that perfection, when you see yourself there, then you understand how unholy that we really are. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit within us. That's how we come to Christ, is we understand that we're sinners. There's many people, millions upon millions upon millions of, of people that call themselves Christians, that have come to Jesus for one reason, to get something. Because they've been told by preachers and evangelists and all these other things, that if they come to Jesus, they're going to get something. And so like those crowds that were following Jesus in His day, that were even willing to go across the, the sea to follow him. 
What was Jesus' response when he met them? You didn't come to be with me. You didn't come to hear what I had to say. You came because your bellies were full. You came because you got something and you want some more of that from me. You want me to give you something. Well, I'm not going to give it. It's part of what he's talking about here, the message that Isaiah was supposed to go and do. Tell them. Tell them over and over again all the judgments of God. And that's one of the reasons why um, sometimes I fear. Because when we talk about the gospel, I don't want anybody in this place or anybody that might be listening. I don't want them to get tired of hearing about the gospel. I don't want them to get tired of hearing about Jesus, the God, the son who came. Incarnate. And became a man like you and me. Lived that perfect life and ultimately died on that cross. For our sin. I don't want people to get tired of that. But these people were going to hear it so often that their ears were going to become dull and their hearts insensitive. Like, ah, that's just Isaiah talking his smack again. Don't listen to him. He doesn't know what he's talking about. That's the idea that's going on. He says, my eyes, my ayin, it's an Aramaic word. He says, my ayin, my eyes, my literal eyes, I've seen, I've looked upon. With these eyes, I've seen it. Spurgeon says of this, uh, these passages, he, he wrote in his notes on this, this awesome passage in the, in the, uh, um, in, of this, and he says, Isaiah is awestruck by this vision of the glory of the Lord. It was a sight such as his eyes have never seen. Isaiah was never actually in the holy place, for he was no priest and could not stand there. In a vision, he saw all this glory. He's just in the presence of all this, this amazing glory. And it was a vision that must have remained in his memory for the rest of his life. There was certainly enough to make him say, woe is me. There was enough there to make him say, woe is me. Oi, me. What is, that's the words in the Hebrew, by the way. Oi, me. Woe is me. Isaiah is a sinful preacher, an imperfect preacher, amongst a sinful and imperfect people. So he felt as if the society in which he moved was the reverse society in which God dwells. Let me read that again. So he must have felt that uh, as if his society in which he moved was the reverse society in which God dwells. What he saw, he said, I live in the very opposite. I live in the very opposite of that. This is holiness. We're in filth. That's how we operate. That's how we talk to one another. No righteousness on our lips. We've not understood the God that we say that we serve. Pure seraphim. Cry aloud, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. But as for our talk, it is unholy, a people of unclean lips. It's unholy. That's what he was realizing. These eyes that he had that saw this vision, the same type of, it's the same word that we read about in Job. 
where Job, the oldest book in the Bible that we understand, it was, it was probably penned before Moses was given the, the account of Genesis. And in Job verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 23 through 27, this is how it reads. In this oldest book, Job is, is being questioned over and over and over again by his friends. He's being accused. And he's saying, man, I don't know what I did wrong. I don't understand. How did all this stuff happen? How could God allow this? And in uh, chapter 19, verses 23 through 27, Job says this. He says, oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. He got his wish. <laughs> he, got his, he got what he wanted. He said that with an iron stylus and lead, that they were engraved on, in the rock forever. He's a, he didn't, may not have known it, but this may be a play on words that God was intentionally writing on his heart. Because Jesus Christ is our rock. And it's written there forever. And then he says in verse 25, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. Hallelujah. And at the last, He will take His stand on the earth. These are thousands and thousands and thousands of years before the Incarnation. He says at the last, He says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that at the last He will take His stand on the earth. He's declaring the King will come. And I know this. He's not here now, but He will come. He's not here in the moment, but He will come. And then He says in verse 26, Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. You get that? This is what's called faith. This is long before the gospel was preached outrightly, overtly. He's talking about the resurrection here. The resurrection, by the way, has been a, a, a truth in the church from the very beginning. It has been part of, of what God was doing in His people, even in the children of Israel. They believed it. They may have had their wrong thinking of it, but who, who of us doesn't have some wrong theology and some faulty theology? Well, they did, but He has it right. He says, even after my skin is destroyed. You know what he's talking about? When he's a skeleton. When all that stuff is rotted off. He says, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. After, I mean, this sounds contradictory. This sounds like a crazy person. This sounds like a guy who's insane. This sounds like something that doesn't make sense. You just said you're not going to have any skin. That it's going to be corrupted. And then you're saying that in my own flesh I'm going to see it? That's crazy talk. Job, you're talking crazy talk here. No. He knew. And it's because of the relationship and the faith that he had in the God that he knew. That this is true. I might rot and become worm food. But I know that in this flesh I'm going to see him. I will see my king coming. I will see him in my own flesh. I will see him with my own eyes. Ayin, my eyes. He says, whom I myself shall behold. I'm going to see him. And my eyes, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. Personal. My personal eyes 
are going to behold my Redeemer. And look at his response. It's a polite response to this idea. It's overwhelming. He says, my heart faints within me. I can't even, I can't even understand this. It's too powerful for me. I know this is true. I know that it's real. I know that my Redeemer, I'll see Him in my own eyes, even after I die. Why? Because He's my Redeemer and He saves. He saves to the uttermost. There's no just possible ability being saved by the Redeemer. Not by our Redeemer, no. It's a sure thing. Job didn't get to see what Isaiah saw, but notice the two things that he was aware of because of the God with whom he knew and he was intimate with. That he knew intimately. Number one, he saw that he knew that he would see his Redeemer. He would see him. Ra'ah is the, the Hebrew word that's written here. And that's to see, to look at, to inspect, to perceive, to consider. That's the idea. Like, I'm, not only am I going to see him, but I'm going to have a mind with which to comprehend incomprehensibly what's before me. Because my eyes and my mind will be intact. I'll be able to perceive it, see it with my own eyes. And the second thing is with that exact thing, with his own eyes, his ayin, his eyes, the physical eyes. Job understood that even after he was dead that his, and his skin was gone, he would yet see Ra'ah, the king. I will see him. Ra'ah, the Hebrew word. The resurrection has always been a part of our belief, for without it, we are a people to be most pitied. It's a true thing. And he understood that. And so, like Isaiah... He had this right response when he thought about it. He didn't get to see, but he has the right response to this understanding, to this knowledge. My eyes have seen the king, he says. Melech is the word. Melech. This is the word for the king that he uses, and that's simply what it means, the king. The king of hosts. Sabah, that which goes forth. Army, war, warfare, host, the army host. This is what he was seeing, what he's thinking about. This is a picture of this Lord of hosts. He's a powerful, powerful, powerful king. Strong and mighty. Gloriously strong. And at his command are armies untold of unnumbered masses. And they're all his. Verse 6, and then one of the seraphim flew to me with burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. The altar from which the live coal was taken is not described. The stress is on the purification necessary for approaching God. And also for being one of his ministers. It's twofold in that sense. The altar symbolizes the purification by blood. And the fire purification by spirit. The blood of Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit sanctify believers today. Hallelujah. In verse 7 he says, He touched my mouth with it. 
and said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away from you and your sin is forgiven. The purification makes the prophet acceptable as a minister of God's words. And you notice that before he was going to be sent in this sense to do what he was called to do, that this verse had to take place, this cleansing. And this angel that brought the coal in the tongs, that was his job. <laughs> that was one of the jobs he has. So I'm going to take your unclean lips and I'm going to burn them, purify them. And that's the idea. It's the purifying of what comes from here. In John um, chapter 15, verses 2 through 4, just to look forward here from where we're at. Uh, like the coal in heaven, the word of God is that which cleanses us and cleans us. So Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 15, verses 2 through 4, he says this. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch uh, that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear, uh, bear more fruit. And here's the, here's the key verse. He says, you are already clean. Why? Because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, he says, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. You get that picture of that angel that's got the burning coal. It's as if Jesus has got that burning coal and saying, I'm cleansing you because of my word. And for the Christian, this is how we learn to be holy. The one place where we can find that continually over and over and over again daily. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, hour after hour, minute after minute, second after second, is here in the Word. Here is where we find holiness. Here is where we find how to live. Here is where we're purified and cleansed. That word washes us clean. His word is the continual detergent for our souls. I like that. His word is the continual detergent for our souls. If we remain abiding in it. If we remain abiding in it. It will make us clean and keep us clean. And that by faith. His lips have been cleaned. He says he's uh, um, that he has been here, that the, uh, uh, he touched my mouth with it, and behold, it, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity has been taken away. The word there that is being spoken of um, is an interesting word. It's avon. Avon. You've seen this word. You've seen um, certain Karens that drive around in cars that have it. Certain ones that, that are even in our midst, maybe. It, you would recognize it if you saw it. It's the word that we call it, uh, we pronounce it Avon. Avon. And what it means is this, uh, this, this word, this iniquity. It means perversity, depravity. Iniquity, guilt, or punishment of iniquity. The consequence of or punishment for iniquity. Avon. It says you've been cleansed of that. It's been taken away. 
And I love that. Isaiah didn't ask for it. He didn't try to make a choice towards it. God just simply sent his angel, takes it away. It reminds me of a psalm, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. He says, your, your, your iniquity has been taken away, your sins, your kata'ah. Kata'ah is the word here. Kata'ah is sin, sinful. It's a sin or sin offering. It's a sin, the condition of sin, the guilt of sin, the punishment of sin. And that's what has been taken away. It's been forgiven. It's been forgiven. Imagine that. I don't know if if Isaiah really sat and thought about that, but think about that. Imagine being in this vision and uh, all of a sudden this creature that comes from the altar of God and says, your iniquity has been taken away because this is perfect. Your sins have been forgiven. What is that? That's great news. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Sin's been taken away. You're free. You're free to go. Like the judge that announces that when you've been acquitted of your guilt. He pounds his gavel. I hear Dubai by the powers invested in me say that you're free to go. Go live your life. This is what was taking place with this burning coal here. It's the thing that, that uh, Isaiah was, ex- was experiencing in this vision. He wasn't there physically, but he was there in this vision. It was the Holy Spirit working within him to make it vivid, full of life, to make it real to him. It does remind me of something in Psalms, and we'll read that. In verse 8, he says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying to me, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. The Lord invited Isaiah to listen in on the sessions of the royal heavenly court. That's cool. I, I must admit, I couldn't help but praying. Lord, that'd be cool if I could see something like that. Like Moses, remember, he said, I just want to see your glory. I just want to see you. And it wasn't because I doubt or because he doubted or because of unbelief. It was just, man, it would be so cool. It would be so amazing. We think about it. God revealing that kind of a thing to him. The Lord invited Isaiah to listen in on the sessions of the royal heavenly court. From this moment on, Isaiah is a servant of God's court and proclaims God's message to kings and people alike. You know, it's no different for the believer. Paul tells us that. He says, look, we're ambassadors. You know who enables an ambassador? The person in power. They're the ones that do it. You're sent out as ministers of the gospel. You're sent out as soldiers in Christ. Soldiers, to fight. We're in a war. We're to go out in war. We're to go out in war against those evil things. We're to stand our ground. When the Bible tells us that the gates of hell will not prevail against His church, the idea is, it's not that the gates of, of church of the hell are, are holding back the... Um, 
the Christian message. No, it's the idea of Christians in their warfare, in all their armor and battlement, we're going with all the machinations of war and they're going to crash that gate with the light that is Christ. And they're going to pierce the darkness with this light. Because we're army, we're an army, we're soldiers, we're warriors in Christ. We have a warrior king. Many people don't want to know Jesus in that way. He is a warrior king. When he comes back, how is he going to come back? He's going to rule with what? A rod of iron. Yeah. He's not going to rule with a fluffy pillow so he can have pillow fights like many people make him out to be. This effeminate Christ that they talk about. This one who has no power, who's ineffectual, who's powerless to save. No, that's not our Christ. Our Christ, he is king. He's the warrior king. He's the one who's going to come and rule with a rod of iron. He will not be mistreated again, ever, when he returns. There will no be no mocking. There will be no whipping. There will be no spitting. There will only be people, one after another, bowing their knee to this holy king. That's all. Isaiah responds, here I am, send me. He says, Hine, Hine, behold. He's like, hey, look, right here, I'm standing right here, is the idea. I'm, I'm right here. I'm here, God. Kine. Shalach. Shalach. Send. I'm right here. Send me. I'll go. I'll go. Again, my man Spurge here, he says in his writings, he says, here we have the divine trinity in unity. Where he's doing this. Recognize when the first statement of the one who is seated there on the throne that Isaiah has seen, he says, whom should I send? Who should I send? It's in the first person. There is the unity. Who will go for us? There is the trinity. God seeking a messenger to deliver his message to his people. Isaiah did not know the errand. Perhaps if he would have known it, he may not have been so eager to go. Who can tell? He's going to go for the rest of his life condemning a nation with this message. It's a tough thing. Sometimes we are called as Christians to be that errand boy, to be that one. To be the one that has to bring this bad news. Because before you can get to good news, you have to have the bad news. you got to have the bad news. And sometimes, all the time, as Christians, we're to be the bearers of that bad news. Oh, but there's an ointment. Oh, but there's a salve. There's a cure. There's a remedy for that bad news. And it's the blood that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. There's people out there that need to hear that. You may believe this. Let me tell you the truth. You're a sinner. 
just like I'm a sinner, just like everyone else that I know. My mom was a sinner. My dad was a sinner. My uncle, who just passed away, he was a sinner, but praise God that all my uncles that I knew from my grandpa's side of the family, they were all believers. And I can rejoice in that. I don't know too many families that can say that. I know that all my uncles were saved. They were trusting in Christ. And I rejoice in my God because of that. But sometimes we're called to be the bearer of bad news before we can get to the good news. We have to let people know. God didn't send His Son so that He could make salvation, redemption, forgiveness, and all those things possible. He didn't come to make it probable. He came. And He did it on the cross and through the cross. He saved His people. He made it sure. He made it so there's no question. He didn't come to make it possible. He came to make it sure. Spurgeon also again says again with... uh, um, Well, before I... Let me read my note here. Isaiah's mission is a paradoxical in its effect. As in the proclamation of the Word of God. The prophetic word closes the way of God to those who are rebellious. Because remember what he told them that he was going to have to go do. What's he supposed to say? Go tell this people, keep on listening, but do not listen. This sounds counterintuitive to what we've always been taught of God. Well, I thought, I thought God loved everybody. That he, he wanted everybody to be saved. Doesn't he? But here we see this is God on his throne saying, go tell this people, keep on listening, but do not listen. Keep on looking. Do not understand. The rebellious have the way of heaven closed off to them. Because they will not bow the knee. Nor can they. And so Isaiah has a tough message to to preach. His prophetic ministry is going to be tough. The prophetic word uh, closes the way of God to those who are rebellious. Proud and hypocritical. But it opens to the deaf. Are you deaf this morning? Do you need to hear something good? Let your ears be opened in Jesus' name. Are you blind? You can't see. Ask God to open your eyes and He'll let you see. To the humble, to the poor, He says, come. You don't need any money. You don't need riches. You don't need wealth. You don't need position. You don't need power. You don't need influence. You don't need any of those things. Just come as you are. Because I'm the king. And I'll make you mine. And I'll make you royalty. I'll make you royalty. You'll have no need of those things. Because I am the king. And I give generously. Spurge says this. He says, this was no ministry of gospel proclamation. It was a ministry of condemnation. He saw, what he saw was not being sent to soften, but to harden. It's a hard thing to think about. I'm sending you to harden their heart. I'm sending you to blind their eyes, to block up their ears, to harden their hearts, to cause their mind to not perceive. That's the message that I want you to take. 
Are you willing this morning? If God commanded you to do that, are you willing to say, yes, Lord? Kenei, Shalak. Behold, I'm right here, send me. I'll do it. Because that's the Christ that I'm talking about. That's the life that I'm talking about. It's not a life that's going to be full of good things all the time. It's going to be things that are going to be tough. It's going to be tribulation. It's going to be being hated. It's going to be being spoken about. Badly. Are you willing to commit yourself to that kind of a Christ? That kind of a God? In 2 Corinthians, Paul even speaks about this. To bring it to the New Testament. He says, for we are in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 15 through 17. He says, for we are a fragrance of Christ to God. Among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death. That's the bad news. And for some it's extra bad news because there is no good news because they will not receive the good news. He says, but to the one is from uh, an aroma of death to death. We smell like walking death sometimes to people. No amount of Avon could cover that smell up. Okay? Just can't. But that's what God has called us to be at times. But he says unto another, an aroma of life. An aroma from life to life. Hallelujah. And who is adequate for these things? See, Paul understood. He's like, I don't know how Isaiah did it. I don't know who's adequate. Who's adequate to bring that kind of a message to people, to the world? He says, for we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. In verses 10 through 13, he says, render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and return and be healed. You mean God rejects people? Yes. That's a hard message. It's not an easy thing. But we're to go out there and preach that gospel to as many people as will listen. And even those that won't listen. Sometimes that's our objective. And they'll stand before a holy God one day and give an account. And when they try to claim, nobody told me. Nobody let me know. I'm ignorant of those things because I had no idea. And he'll say, my servant, so-and-so. My servant, Brian, sent him. I sent him. My servant, Hugo, I sent him. Celia, I sent to you. Melinda, I sent. What will they say then? Well, I don't remember. You didn't want to. You didn't want to. It is a hard, hard message here that this part of the scriptures, because we were, we've been taught this idea of God that is just this loving, soft, sugary, soppy love God. Not this God who's actually God, who can do as He pleases, and everything that He does is good. And then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered and said, 
until the cities are devastated and without inhabitants. Houses are without people. And the land is utterly desolate. That's a long time because this was going to take many, many, many years. He was going to go through many kings. This is a hard work. Ministry is hard work. And you're called to it. Each and every one of you are called to the ministry. When you are a Christian, you're called to minister. To minister to people. Even if they hate you for it. You're called to that. You're ministers. You're soldiers. You're warriors. Your king sends you. He bids you go. And the right response. You'll know it when you see it. He says in verse 12, The Lord has removed men far away and forsaken places uh, are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it. I love that. God always has a remnant. He always keeps a remnant. He's always got His own. He always keeps His own. He's never without. And it will be again... It will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is a stump. I want to read from Luke, the New Testament. Here's the right response. In Luke chapter 5, verse 5 through 10, Simon, it says this, uh, this picture of this, this, uh, the disciples are out fishing. And... In Luke chapter 5, verses 5 through 10, Simon Peter is there, and, and Simon Peter answers the master because Jesus had told him, uh, throw the net on the other side of the boat. Simon answered to him and said, Master, that's right, Master. It's a biblical word. I was reading just the other day where that's uh, now it's racist to say Master. If you have a master bedroom, how dare you? You're racist. Isn't that ridiculous? But that's the fallenness of man. They want to redefine everything. They want to play God. Well, here's Peter using a racist word. Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But I will do as you say and let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. How awesome would that be for God to, our master to tell you, cast the net on the other side. And you begin to haul it in because you're obedient by faith. And it begins to break that net. So many fish. And it begins to break and they enclosed a great number of quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. They needed help to do this. That's the way ministry is. We need help. And they came and filled both of the boats. Awesome. Awesome, God. Yeah. We can fix them later. Let's just haul this in, this load. So that they began to sink. That's crazy talk right there. That's the abundance of Christ right there. That's a show of that. And even before they were born again, this is Him demonstrating His riches. 
that he pours out on us. And listen, in verse 8, but when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. It's the right response. I don't deserve what you've given me. I don't deserve this load that we've gotten. I don't deserve this. Why are you giving me this? Why are you treating me so? I'm a sinful man. And that's what it feels like when you're really forgiven and you know that you're forgiven. There are those times when you're broken before Him. You cry out, Lord, I don't understand why you're so good to me. I don't get it. I don't deserve it. I deserve eternity in hell. I deserve to be out of your presence. But you draw me in and you tell me that you love me. Hallelujah. Glory to God. He gives and he gives and he gives. He helps us to know that it's because that's who he is. He loves. He loves beyond our reckoning. It's indescribable. And Simon Peter has this moment and he says, Go away from me, Kurios. I'm a sinful man. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on, you will be catching men. Hallelujah. This that I've demonstrated to you is what I expect. But it will be with men. And boy, did they ever. It's amazing. Isaiah in this chapter, he's undone. He's ruined. He has had the vision of the king, the Lord of hosts. He's awestruck by this holiness. That he is beheld. It's reminiscent of the uh, of of the uh, passage in Luke, where you have the two people who come in to the temple to pray. You have the Pharisee on the one hand, who comes in and says, "God, I'm a humble. I give and I give. I give more than I'm supposed to. Thank you for not making me like these other guys, like this tax collector back." Thank you for making me humble. It's the kind of prayer that he was praying. False humility. This poor tax collector who people hated. Goes. He begins to beat his chest. Cries out. In the same way that Job says, I know my Redeemer lives. The same way that Isaiah said, I'm ruined, I'm undone. This tax collector beats his chest. Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me. Like Isaiah, he had the right response. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm unclean. I'm a sinner. I'm sinful. But have mercy on me. The word there in the Greek is, is made 
be propitiatory to me. Let this sacrifice that's taking place as I'm praying, let it be enough to remove that barrier that my sins would be forgiven. This is the idea that is here. This is what uh, Isaiah is talking about in all these things. And I want to read before I'm done here from the Psalms. And in the Psalms, there is an amazing passage that I love. If I can find my notes. And what it is, is the passage where um, David, he's crying out to God. And he says, how blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven. How blessed is that man? How blessed is the one whose sin is not imputed into him, but the one who's made right and justified before God. That is God's grace. And how blessed is that man? How free is that man? How much liberty does that man have? He has all the liberty in the world. He has all the liberty and freedom in the universe. Why? Because he's been forgiven. His sin has not been imputed to him. But instead, Christ's righteousness is imputed. And you can stand before the king like Isaiah in that vision. And you can see because his righteousness clothes you. And his righteousness covers you. And his righteousness, that which is alien to us, that which is foreign to us, it is imputed to us. Not the sin. That was imputed to Christ on the cross. He became a curse for us. He that knew no sin, he made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. That's what's taking place. That's how blessed that man is. That woman is, that child is, that knows that their sins have been forgiven. Because you're free. That's why we celebrate this portion of our service. We have communion today. Because we celebrate, Carrie said rightly when he said, we celebrate communion. Because we do. Because we have a Savior who shed His blood. Because we have a Savior who came. And the God, a very God who came, took on flesh. He paid that price on that cross where that debt that we had incurred was nailed to the cross once for all so that we could be forgiven. And we could celebrate the fact that He died. And we can remember that He did do it. And He did say Tetelesti, Tetelestai Paid in full. It is finished. It's done. Paid. All the legal payment, the debt, it's all squashed. Done. Paid in full. So that we can celebrate, so that we can partake of that in communion. Not just communion with one another, but in communion with the spirit of the sacrifice of Christ. And we can be refreshed. We can be renewed. We can be nourished. 
That's what communion is about. And we do that by faith. We operate in that by faith. And that is what communion is. Maybe there's somebody out there that has never received Christ. Maybe they received Christ because they thought that Jesus would give them something in return. Well, He does. But first, He removes all sin. Hallelujah. He makes you new. He doesn't leave you as you are. He doesn't leave you as you were. He changes you. He makes you. And you realize it. And you know it. And you come to Him. Simply because of who He is. Trust Him. Yes, it's important to understand that we come to Him because we know that we're sinners. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our, of our sin. Of our wretchedness. Of our iniquity. But He also at the same time illumines our minds and hearts and eyes and ears to hear. You're a sinner. But there's a Savior greater still than all of your sin. And He paid for it all. Hallelujah. And that's what we celebrate when we celebrate communion. We celebrate the fact that Jesus came and He died. And so I want to read from 2 Corinthians 11. What Paul wrote about this. <clears throat> In 2 Corinthians, oops. it's in 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 32. And this is what Paul, Paul writes about, and this is what the next portion of our service is going to be, the communion. And Paul says this from verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus was willing. He was willing to die for you and for me. Willing. And in the same way, he says, we took, um, in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you do. Drink it in remembrance of me. And that's what we do. We remember what he done. We remember who he is. We remember the sacrifice. Remember that he died. Remember that he took on sin himself so that we could be set free. And so that we, the scum of the earth, could go out and bring this marvelous message. There is a Savior who saves. He doesn't make it possible. He makes it sure. He says, for as often as you eat in, uh, this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. This is part of what we do. We proclaim it. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
For he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. And that's not that they're tired and took a nap. That's the dirt nap. The long nap. <laughs> because that's why some of you are dead because of this. And he says in verse 31, but if we've judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord. And remember, the Lord disciplines whom? Those whom he loves. He loves you as his own child. He'll discipline you. And it hurts. But it hurts so good. It hurts so good. Right? Right? He says, but if we judge ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord in order that we may not be condemned along with the world. Look at that. It's so that you won't be condemned. That's why he does it. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. What a glorious king that you are. What a wondrous God that you are. That you would let us know that we can be forgiven. That we are forgiven when we trust in that sacrifice that was done so long ago. That one which we proclaim. That our God and our Savior and King, even the Lord Jesus, came, took on flesh. And the likeness of sinful flesh. And paid that price on the cross. Despising the shame. And the humiliation of it. He took it. You made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So that we could be your righteousness in him. What an amazing, glorious exchange. We thank you. We praise you. For it is the telestai. It is finished. For those who have never trusted, Lord, I pray that they would receive you by faith, repent of their sin, and that they would come and partake with us as free children, adopted children, made whole and new in the wondrous love, glory, grace, and holiness of our God and King. We thank you, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.